How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Welcome. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm back, and we also have Ian back here as well. You want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Thank you for uh, tuning into our podcast. All right. We got a good subject here for you guys today. It's on the Spanish treasure fleet, which sunk off the coast of Florida. If you want to look for real treasure, this is $400 million in coins and gold and silver stretch across the coastal area, stretching from Melbourne to Fort Pierce, known as Florida's Treasure Coast. This is like a real-life Indiana Jones scenario right here. Yeah, grab your metal detectors, go down on beaches, and uh, search for some gold. Let's go on a freaking adventure today. It's going to be fun. All right. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys of the Facebook pages out. Don't forget to check that for information on the episode. Uh, ask questions and stay up to date on the information concerning the podcast. We got uh, some followers that we'll shout out here at the end today. We thank you guys for supporting us as we continue to endeavor in this podcast. And it's turning out pretty good so far. We got 27 people out there. so Yeah, I'm, I, I'm very excited. I not expect that. Uh... I don't expect so many people to show up after only one uh, one one podcast being aired. Hi yeah, guys, we we really thank you for your support. It, it really helps us make this possible. Uh, don't forget to show your support as well for this podcast by donating on the Anchor website, the awesome podcast server that we use to make all of these episodes possible. And then uh, at the end, we are going to give some shout outs to you, those of you who have already liked the Facebook page. So stay tuned till the end so you can hear that as well. All right, like I said, today we're going to talk about the Conquistadors and the Spanish treasure fleet. It's perfect for all you treasure hunters and Indiana Jones out there. So we'll talk about the Spanish occupation of the Americas, where they got this treasure, the 1622 fleet and the 1715 fleet. And then starting it all off, I'd like to say a quote by the famous Mel Fisher, who looked for the the 1622 fleet, his famous motto, today is the day. What better way to start off our uh, journey than with the age-old story of uh, Christopher Columbus and his voyage to the Americas? Yep, that's how the Spanish occupation of the Americas all started, with his voyage in 1492. Uh, When the monarchs of Spain, Queen Elizabeth, and King Ferdinand financed his voyage, uh, Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic Ocean, and he started this entire story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, You should all be familiar with uh, the story of Christopher Columbus. We probably all grew up with it. Uh, in 1492, he sailed the ocean blue in the Ninapinta and Santa Maria, as you're probably familiar with. Uh, but Columbus actually organized four voyages besides his initial one in 1492. Uh, the years that he did these voyages were 1492, 1493, 1498, and 1502. And by doing this, he really launched the colonization and exploration of these lands later by Spanish conquistadors or conquerors. And then you can get into some of the, the Spanish translation stuff if you want to, because I know you're familiar with Spanish. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, some of you should be familiar with the idea that he wasn't actually looking for the Americas of the New World, but instead a faster route for trade with India, which was then mainly controlled by other countries. So he's like, all right, I'm not able to travel to uh, – been able to travel to India or the Middle East, where a lot of the stuff they needed and production in Europe was at, like uh, silks and spices and stuff. 
So he's like, all right, if I can go this way, then I'll go the other way. But he obviously miscalculated and he missed an entire new world or continent that he didn't even know was there. But luckily for us, he found this with his misguided adventure to America. He happened to be discovering the new world and created Spanish contact in it, which is basis for the story and the stuff we're going to talk about today. Uh, the Pope gave Spain control over the Western Hemisphere and the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas, and Spain colonized the Caribbean by roughly 1510. So it really didn't take that long for them from the initial discovery to actually colonizing this new area. It really didn't take that long to do. Um, in the treaties of Tordesilla, that was signed in Tordesillas, Spain on June 7, 1494, and authenticated in settable Portugal, this newly, divided, this newly conquered land was divided outside Europe between the Portuguese Empire and the Spanish Empire along the 370 leagues meridian, or west of the Cape Verde Islands of the west coast of Africa. So pretty much dead in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, everything in uh, Asia, so we think about India, uh, Thailand, Bangkok, Australia, all that area was more or less belonged to Portugal, and then all this new world, which they... Didn't really know what constituted this, so the Portuguese actually thought they were getting the better end of the deal. That all went to Spain, but as we'll figure out, they really got the, the upper hand in this treaty. No. There was a lot more unexplored land that they had no idea about. Um, the lands to the east belonged to Portugal, like we were saying, and then the lands to the west to Spain. Uh, however, the other side of the world was divided a few decades later by another treaty called the Treaty of Zaragoza which was signed on April 22nd and 1529. So eventually they realized, oh, damn, we gave Spain a lot of territory. All right, so now we're going to need to buy this up because they really didn't know how much land they were actually dealing with. It was a lot more than they thought. And uh, if you guys are interested, actually, originals of both of these treaties are kept at the General Archives of the Indies in Spain and the Tombo de Tombo National Archive of Portugal. Probably butchered that Portuguese translation. I'm not very familiar with the Portuguese language. La Torre, la torre de Tombo. There you go. Um, I, when I, I'll put a little side note in here. I've actually wanted to go to the, the General Archives of the Indies in Spain for the longest time because I know they actually have tons of primary sources that are really useful in this, not just the Spanish treasure fleet hunt, but also... Um, on different pirates and the Spanish occupation of the New World, they have all these really great sources, and I just always thought it'd be such a cool thing to actually go there one day. Um, Columbus himself was actually disappointed with his discovery at first because he didn't land in India, and he thought that he embarrassed himself with this miscalculation because he really thought that the world was, according to his view, a lot shorter a path across the West to India. He... And, it's pretty much like screwing up a math equation in front of uh, the principal of the school or a, a professor. If you can imagine, I'm probably sure, feel I'm pretty sure dumb. all had a similar uh, experience. Yeah, right. I know I have. I'm not very good at math. If you ask me a math question, I probably won't be able to tell you. <laughs> um, and on top of that, unlike Africa or Asia, the Caribbean Islanders actually really had very little to trade and no great riches like Columbus thought he could gain from uh, from India. However, as we'll figure out with the Spanish treasure fleet, and that's literally the title of our episode, this wasn't really the case. 
The islands, however, became the focus of colonization efforts, and because of this, Spain would finally find what they were looking for. So they would eventually find this gold and silver, but it took them a while to do so. Uh, with the colonization of these islands, the conquistadors were able to move further into the continent itself. Exploring it, Spain would find the wealth that it sought in abundant gold and meet civilizations which were much bigger than they could have ever expected. With all this grandeur, they developed the theories of El Dorado and Cibola, and they're like, okay, wow, this land is actually a lot richer than they thought than we thought. And you get the stories of the cities of gold and the uh, riches of that no unknown riches, like yeah. un, 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 unknown rest. <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. Pretty much you go from, uh, oh, I don't think anything's in this land. That's what Columbus thought in the Caribbean Islanders. And then they move more inland. And they start colonizing these areas and they start building forts and shelters and mule trains and all this really developed stuff. And then they're like, wow, OK, we're meeting all these really advanced tribes that we never thought were here. Um, because of how advanced the tribes were, actually, they didn't think that. They, they had developed on their own. They didn't think that they had developed from hunter-gatherers. They actually thought some of these tribes were – they actually thought some of these tribes were the lost tribes of Israel or that they came from Europe as a, as a developed people and they crossed the ocean and actually developed here. Wow. They, they just couldn't believe their eyes that such hunter-gatherers could create such huge temples and complexes like these. So it's really crazy. And as we, uh, as we get into the Spanish conquistadors – We'll see them come across these tribes and really what they think and what they saw. And eventually Spain would really just become the richest empire in the Americas because of this exploration. That was all kickstarted by Christopher Columbus in 1492. Now we're going to hop right into the Spanish conquistadors. We have uh, three primary conquistadors we're going to be talking about. Um, but before that, uh, the word conquistadors itself, we can, uh, you can clearly tell the uh, prefix conqui, which means conquerors, and the suffix adores, which I believe means death or, or some sort of fighting term, because you uh, see it in matadors, where there's bullfighting. I was going to say in reference to the bullfighting with the matadors. The bullfighting, which is matadors. And the literal translation of matadors would be killer or murderers. And um, so conquistadors, I would believe, would be conquerors of uh, either death or, or, or fighting conquerors or something regarding that. So this will be an interesting topic, and I'm very excited to talk about it. There's actually some really interesting linguistics there. You really like start looking at the words and what they mean, and then it really develops an idea of what, of what it's in reference to and what it, actually, what it actually is. So that's actually really interesting. I didn't know that before. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you shared that with us. That's pretty interesting. Um, as Spain moved into the American continent, they would meet three highly developed tribes and hear rumors about more. Who do you think these tribes were? Uh, the Mayan, Aztec, and Inca tribes. Yep, obviously. Do you know uh, Do you know where each was at this time? Um, I believe somewhere uh, in Mexico. <laughs> the Aztecs and Mayans were based out of Mexico. The Mayans were in the Yucatan. You know the Yucatan, that, uh, the peninsula. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar. And then uh, the Incas developed out of Peru, which, you know, is the Andes Mountains mm -hmm. in South America. Yeah. All right. And then, like we were saying, they'd also be conquered by different conquistadors. So let's kickstart with the Aztec Empire. This one's a really interesting story. All right. Let's get started. Uh, on August 13th, 1521, after a three-month siege, Hernan Cortes and his Spanish forces would capture Tenochtitlan, toppling the Aztec Empire. So you know where Tenochtitlan is? 
You know Mexico City? I believe Tenochtitlan was a city located uh, surrounded by water, I believe. Yeah, it's an island city. They actually developed all this island where the theory goes that they had, uh, they had seen a hawk eating a snake on a cactus, and this was supposed to be a sign from the gods to tell the – they were originally hunter-gatherer tribe to tell this hunter-gatherer tribe where they were supposed to land and where they were supposed to build this great civilization of theirs. Uh, actually, isn't it on the Mexican flag? Yes, it is on the Mexican flag, and I believe there's a lot of um, a lot of fascination with the how the city was actually built because I believe that the ground they was built upon was actually also man-made. Was it? I didn't. I believe it was. I, I believe, don't know about that part. That's actually pretty interesting. I believe the they they had developed their own uh, their own method of of creating land to build their cities upon. Okay, wow. So they didn't even just build the pyramids and the structures and stuff there, but they you think they built the island itself? I actually? believe they built the island itself. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. All right, that's cool. Uh, all right, so we'll begin with some background on the Aztec Empire and how they developed before we talk about how Cortez wiped them out. Uh, like I was saying, beginning as a tribe of hunter-gatherers, the Aztecs followed the commands of the god, and they settled down in this area where they saw the hawk eating the snake on the cactus. Um, and then this island would later become Tenochtitlan near the Lake Texcoco, founded in 1325 A.D., so really, compared to the grand scheme of histories, you think about 1325. Um, that's that's a relatively new empire. So they didn't really have as much time to develop as uh, the Spanish had. The Spanish had developed centuries and thousands and thousands of years ago out of the, the Indo-European tribes that wandered through Europe and made these European cultures. They didn't really have as much time because uh, Egypt goes back like thousands and thousands of years. I think at least a 3200 BC, which is a long time ago. Uh, that's because if you guys know the story of how these uh, tribes got to the Americas, the Americas was the last place that uh, early humans actually had reached. They had developed out of Africa. They moved through uh, Europe and Asia, and they went to the oceanic islands and then they went over the Bering land bridge you know where that is up in alaska along the aleutian islands that that little straight up oh, there yeah, by yeah, russia how they uh, transferred to the americas themselves yeah that land bridge and then they that land bridge left after the ice ages and they were essentially trapped on this new world but that hadn't happened all that movement and development had happened way later than a lot of these european tribes had so you think and you wonder if this isn't the reason why the Indians weren't prepared. And I say Indians loosely because we talked about Columbus and how he thought he landed in India. That's why they're called Indians. Yeah. Rather, they'd be called Natives or Native Americans. Yeah. Native Americans should really be the true term, not Indians. Uh, so, yeah, they didn't really have this much time. And so the Aztecs... They, they developed in 1325 A.D., but they wouldn't become a mighty empire until around 1502 because of their advanced agriculture system. And I'm wondering if you have heard about this before. The, they had uh, gardens on these little islands of the, of the main city in Tenochtitlan where they'd actually take out canoes and they'd canoe over to these islands where they'd build gardens. And it was all based off, like, it was all based off Lake Texcoco that they would grow these plants and build these amazing islands. So 
your your theory about them building Tunnel Chitlan itself and the island that that was built on doesn't seem too far off because they were able to do this. So yeah, why wouldn't they be able to do that as well? Um, and then their military might would also be a really important thing for them. And this really came about with the ascendance of Montezuma II. Montezuma II was easily one of the most important Aztec kings. And uh, when we get into some of the Aztec military strategies, they're actually really interesting. Uh, and I, I believe this is familiar or similar with all the other tribes we're going to talk about, the Mayans and the Inca. But during warfare, they would use more, uh, they would use more tactics to scare their enemy. And they would uh, they would capture their enemy, and they wouldn't kill them on the battlefield because once they capture their enemy, they could use it and they could bring them to sacrifice later. Oh, their rituals are very interesting. Um, I believe their uh, Aztecs and Mayans and Incas all had rituals, um, but I believe the most famous being would the priests would wear the the victim the sac the the sacrifice's skin and uh, rip out their cut out their heart to keep the sun rising every day. Yeah, I know they would stand at the top of these pyramids and the sun would rise and they would they rip out the heart. They'd have these like obsidian knives. If uh, you guys have ever heard about those, those things are really interesting. Those are a lot sharper than you think too. Obsidian, they, once they got it sharpened, it was, it, was, it was brutal. It was a brutal knife that they used to just slaughter these victims. They kicked the bodies down the pyramid. It was super brutal. And they, they just did all this because they thought that they'd keep the sun going the sun was a god to them and then they thought that the sun needed their sacrifice victims uh it was regarded as going. a really high honor to be sacrificed wasn't it yeah pretty much uh if you want to want a game they had a game where they it was kind of like soccer but you weren't allowed to use your foot or hands you had to like hit the ball with your side and get it through this tiny hoop and like obviously there was a point system whoever got more points would win but the, the winners, the winners had the honor of being sacrificed. It sounds like a great honor, right? Honor. <laughs> I would love to be sacrificed after winning my games. Yeah, no trophy. You get the you get the honor of being slaughtered. That sounds sounds amazing, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they would really become this mighty empire, and they'd uh, they'd expand out of Lake Texcoco to take around uh, a lot of the area in modern day Mexico. So they really grew into this mighty empire, especially under Montezuma II. Montezuma II was easily one of their most famous kings, the most influential kings. We'll get into him. Uh, he was actually very important because he set up a bureaucracy for them, and he created provinces that would pay tribute. So they'd have Lake Texcoco, and they'd have that culture, but then they'd also have local tribes and other groups of people that would pay them money or give them stuff as a tribute to them. So they really developed this complex system. I think Rome had a similar thing where like uh, Roman Britannia or modern Britain was still a part of the Roman Empire, but they still had their own people. The Britons were very much their own people, but they paid tribute to Rome, making them a part of the empire. So the Aztecs had something like that, very similar. So it's a very interesting system that they developed. And then uh, he would also provide conquered victims for religious sacrifice, like we were talking about. He probably with all of his military might provided most of the sacrifice victims probably out of any king at the Aztecs ever had just because of uh, military strength. Like their warfare, you wouldn't, you wouldn't kill people in war. You would, you would conquer them, you capture them, and then you bring them to sacrifice. All right. And we'll get into 
Cortez. By March 1519, Hernan Cortez, an already well-established general and conquistador, landed in Tabasco and Mexico's Bay of Campeche with 500 soldiers, 100 sailors, and 16 horses ready for exploration of the new land. So Columbus has landed in the new world, and then all these conquistadors start coming over, uh, these generals and these people who really thought they could find a new life and establish for themselves great honor in this new world by conquering these tribes and taking down these civilizations and bringing back to Spain all these riches of the new world. And Hornan Cortez was one of those people. Um, if you look at, if you look at what he had compared to uh, some of the other battles that medieval Europe had witnessed, he really didn't have that many soldiers. Five hundred sailors, or one hundred sailors, sorry, and five hundred soldiers and sixteen horses. Uh, it it's, seems like a lot, but it's really not that much in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Like more, more. Uh... Later on, you'll see these conquistadors that are coming with thousands of soldiers to take over the, the tribes. But uh, Cortez is very famous because of how, many, how few soldiers he had and how he was still able to conquer their uh, civilization itself. Yeah, exactly. So before making his way to Tenochtitlan, Cortez stopped in Veracruz to train and equip his army for what might lie ahead. So I'm assuming he probably didn't even have very well-trained soldiers either because he had yeah. to stop in Veracruz to actually train them. So it was very interesting. He doesn't seem like he's hardly prepared at all. No, he this. really made a name for himself by, uh, by conquering this land. Cortez is a very famous name. You, you uh, hear it thrown around a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm sure in the Spanish culture it's a huge name. Um, But luckily for him, the empire was in a state of political strife. So the Aztecs were actually arguing amongst themselves. And so once Cortez comes in here, that really doesn't make it any better. And so that's probably why it was actually a little bit easier for him to take down this civilization. Um, And then on top of that, upon arrival, Montezuma had mistakenly viewed them as the divine envoys to the god Quasicotl, which was one of the main gods in their pantheon. Uh, They had many gods. They were a polytheistic religion many gods so they actually thought cortez was a uh, pretty much like a messenger from quasi and that was the problem with a lot of these tribes back then they had never seen the white man before they had only seen people of their similar similar style and biological traits so when they saw these strange white men on these horses with a uh, shining silver armor they really thought they came from the gods themselves they had no idea who these people were and uh, we talked about in the Knights Templar episode. I'll go on a little tangent. Uh, when Henry Sinclair, who had uh, contacts with the Templars, when he came over to uh, Nova Scotia to explore uh, to explore the Americas based off the Vikings' findings of Nova Scotia, uh, the tribe, the Micmac, actually thought he came on a floating island because they had never seen uh, the ship before. They'd never seen Viking ships or any huge ships like that at all that could travel such vast distances. So it's really interesting how these tribes ended up viewing these peoples. Yes, they were treated like gods as well. Like um, they, they were greeted with open arms and uh, shown their culture, but um, I do not believe the conquistadors were very fond of their culture, especially the, the rituals they performed. Oh, yeah. As a Christian, you see all these sacrifice victims and rituals and then Old saying, "Thou shalt not kill." It was a big no-no. <laughs> so they're like, "No, this is this is satanic. These are not good people." 
but that's the clash of cultures and that's the wonder of history is uh one group of people can think this is perfectly good and that they're ironing the gods while the other one thinks this is completely wrong and it's dishonoring the gods yes it's this hostile conflict and a clashing of cultures that really develops all these great events that we've known throughout history um all right went on a little tangent there figure out where we were <laughs> um upon arrival like we were saying montezuma had reviewed them as divine envoys to the god quasi kodal who prof who was prophesied to return from the east in one read year or in translation that be on 1519 so what are cortez's odds that he arrives just about that time <laughs> it's like all right this is pretty good so he actually seizes this opportunity. He, uh, he takes his place as the divine envoy as Quasicodal or whatever. And uh, the Spanish were actually greeted with great honor. And he seized Montezuma, holding him hostage, and he ended up governing the empire. That's incredible. So he's like, ah, it sucks for you guys. You think I'm God? No, I'm going to take your king and I'm going to hold him hostage. So you guys should know better next time. <laughs> Uh, their luck began to ran out, and on June 30th, being under pressure and lacking food, Cortez and his men had to fight their way out of the capital. This day became known as, you want to say the Spanish for that? La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sadness. Yep, there you go. The night, this became known as the Night of Sadness, because when they were sailing on Lakes Texcoco, they had taken all this treasure from the Aztecs, they had fooled the Aztecs into thinking that they were divine messengers of Quasicodal. They took all their gold and they actually, their vessel sank on Lake Texcoco and many of the men ended up drowning because of the armor back then was heavy. So even if you oh, knew yeah. how to swim, that you were not going to be able to swim out of that lake Most with were, that heavy armor. Yeah, we're, we're drowned by the, what they wore. Um, although this failed, they would return. Uh, they would return in May 1521 and after a three-month siege, the city would fall. This victory marked the fall of the Aztec Empire and Cortez's rise to power, becoming the vast, becoming the ruler of a vast Mexican empire. So, a three-month siege. I'm trying to think. Uh, the the Crusades definitely had longer sieges than that. So, yeah, it, I don't even think it really took that long to end up conquering the Aztec. When they were actually able to come back in 1521. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were totally caught off guard. I'm sure the siege wasn't. Very hard, especially once he got their ruler to trust them and then just turn on him immediately, just cut off the head of the snake right away. Yep, there you go. Hot reference to the snake uh, yeah. eating the, getting eaten by the hawk and the cactus. Yeah. There you go, symbolism, bam, we developed something. The The hawk is the Spaniards eating the Aztec, which is the... Which is... The snake. The snake, which is the Aztecs. There you go. Yeah. Symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then an important thing to remember about this as it will come up later, uh, Mexico actually became known by Cortez, he translated the name of the Mexican Empire, to New Spain, or Nueva España. Did I say that right? Yeah, Nueva España. Uh, that's, that's a correct pronunciation. So that is the conquering of the Aztecs tribe. All right, and now we'll get into the mine. Uh, we, interestingly enough, had a few errors recording our uh, last session, but uh, we're going to pick up right here. Uh, regarding Pedro de Alvarado, who who was very famous because he played a role in the conquering of all the civilizations, Aztec, Mayan, and Incan. But his uh, presence is most primarily known in the Mayan Empire after serving in Cortez's Aztec campaign from 1519 to 1521. 
Yeah, and uh, that's actually a really loose term because the Mayan Empire, right, at this point in time, it was actually in a state of decline. Uh, the specific, uh, sorry, the Mayans would break up in uh, several independent kingdoms, and one of these independent kingdoms was actually the Quiche, which is really what Pedro de Alvarado actually went on to conquer, interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, now, going on, um, the first large Mayan cities to develop in the Pitan Basin, or far south of the Yucatan Peninsula, beginning as far back as their middle pre-classic period from 600 to 350 BC. Um, the, Here, I'll, I'll add in there. Um, so we were talking about the Aztecs. Aztecs developed out of the modern-day Mexico City, around that area, and they would expand out from there. The Mayans were uh, heavily influenced by the Aztecs because geographically they weren't that far away from them. They developed out of the Yucatan, and the Aztecs and the Mayans would actually clash at certain points in history. So they very much met each other. And then the Incans, we'll talk about them later next, but they're going to be a different case, and they're going to have their own distinct system, and we'll talk about that. But they had their own distinct system because they were so geographically isolated because they were in the Andes Mountains. They didn't have anybody else that they could uh, clash cultures with. We'll look at the Aztec and the Mayans and we'll compare them and they have uh, a lot of similarities and a lot of things in common. Uh, they both had very advanced calendar systems. They both used yeah. the, the pyramid structures that you guys all may be familiar with, the stone pyramids. Uh, they both did uh, systems of sacrificing, uh, pretty bloody stuff. Uh, and then uh, they both studied the stars, and they both uh, did warfare pretty similarly. Uh, the Mayan calendar, which you guys should be familiar with. Yeah, yeah. whatever happened to that? Interestingly enough, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> didn't the Mayan calendar render the world to um, end, like, 2012? Yeah, or 2012. So uh, either they ran out of stone, which is my theory, and they're like, no, nah, screw it. We're not going to continue this calendar, or <laughs> it just didn't end up panning out like they thought. Uh, yeah, the Mayan calendar is an interesting stuff. Like, we probably do a whole different thing on that even if we wanted to yeah um but the mayan calendar was actually the basis for the basis for the aztec calendar so that shows a good combining of cultures they were very inter intertwined yeah, that, that influence is present in both uh both civilizations all right continue on the mayas oh yeah um the mayans would eventually grow into a proud culture of scholars priests warrior and farmers who had complex religion um, advanced knowledge of the stars and thriving cities. So they, they had tons of different jobs that you could do. Uh, scholars and priests were probably the most important just because they developed mm -hmm. uh, new inventions and stuff that would help the empire. The priests contained uh, the, the holy scriptures. I think they had uh, some Mayan manuscripts that the conquistadors ran across when they found them. And I think most of them actually ended up getting burned. Because wow. of uh, what they were deeming heresy in them. <laughs> like the Catholic Church is known so well to have done in, done in the past. Didn't that play a role in their decline as they were focused on their own um, structure? Yeah, not only did it play a role in their decline, but it also played a role in their, uh, their history not continuing. And them being a very huge puzzling mystery to... Uh, to archaeologists for a long time. We, we had all these pyramids and structures, but uh, we... Well, mining glyphs and stuff, and uh, that their actual own writing, which was on on parchment at least, because you can't burn stone. Uh, uh, Fortunately, you, you cannot. Burn <laughs> <laughs> you can burn parchment though, and all those parchments, or most of them at least, were were taken by the conquistadors and burned. So all that information that we could have learned about the mines, we we 
don't have access to. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, yeah, libraries were burned and like so much information was lost. Um, there's theories that we could have used some of their technology to advance our own um, if, if the libraries had not been burned. Yeah, that's kind of like a very similar story to uh, the Library of Alexandria, if you guys are familiar with that story. I'm sure we could have learned a lot from that as, as well, if you guys know what I'm talking about. The Library of Alexandria was uh, uh, one of the world's biggest libraries ever and had tons and tons of books in uh, in Egypt, but it ultimately ended up being burned. Uh, they stole the the Paphos Lighthouse, which was by the, the library, in, the, in my theory, if you're able to look at the lighthouse, I think you'd probably figure out where the library is and maybe find remnants of that but that's a whole nother thing yeah going back into the mines yes uh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> some of the biggest mayan cities included tikal palenque and copan um yeah so these massive squares and these massive pyramid structures and uh, all of these great complexes uh you you think about these these were mainly in tikal palenque and copan Let's see that's what we think about so very interesting um, the high point of the Mayan civilization occurred around 380 to 900 AD before falling into disease, wars, and famine. Ultimately, it would break up into several more independent kingdoms that would grow on their own path under the influence of the Mayan culture. Yeah, and we'll continue to talk about this a little bit later, but that's like the quiche that we'll talk about. Um, the Mayan civilization, like we, uh, very similar to the Aztecs, they had, uh, they had a little bit more time to develop, developing 600 BC, but they also really didn't, in the grand scheme of things, have much time to develop either. 600 BC compared to 3200 BC in uh, Egypt and some of the other civilizations that were much older, really they didn't have that much time to develop because the Americas took such a long time for uh, hunter-gatherer tribes to get to. Mm -hmm. So this high point of mind civilization in the 300 and 900 AD is really what uh, most of you probably think when you think about the Mayan. All these great pyramids and stuff were built during this period. The Mayan calendar was developed. But like any great culture, they, they had their decline. They fell into the disease, war, and famine. And that's just a process that happens over time. And uh, this disease, though, was ironically mostly caused by uh, contact with the New World yeah, and the, the Spanish conquistadors. The, the sometimes the uh, conquistadors didn't even need to touch areas of Native American settlements just because they were so easily killed off by these new diseases that their immune systems couldn't fight off. Yeah, not uncommon in history. Uh, same thing happened with um, the Native tribes from Christopher Columbus. They brought in smallpox blankets, you know, and uh, measles, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Smallpox was a huge one that killed off a lot of the a lot of the Indian tribes. It was one of the major diseases during that time period. Mm -hmm. All right, get into Pedro. Let's get into Pedro. Yeah. Um, uh, to mention that Pedro de Alvarado was a very accomplished man. Um, he was born in 1485 in Badajoz, Extremadura. Uh, Spain, he became the ma only major conquistador to take part in the conquests of the Aztecs, Maya, and Incan uh, civilizations. Um, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Pedro de Alvarado isn't de Alvarado mean from Alvarado, even though he was born in Badajoz? Yeah, it's from Alvarado, which is like a, his uh, surname. It's give, It gives him like a, a position of power as Pedro from Alvarado, yes. Uh, very similar to uh, Da Vinci, you guys have ever heard of? 
Oh, God, I just made my own mistake there. Leonardo da Vinci, because da Vinci itself just means from Vinci. So if yeah. you call him da Vinci, he's just you're just saying from Vinci. It's Leonardo da Vinci or Leonardo from Vinci. So it's the same thing here with Pedro de Alvarado, Pedro from Alvarado. So I just find that interesting with uh, the surnames and the, the, the language translation. So that's why I've used yeah. here, you know, some of that Spanish stuff that I don't know as well. That stuff's also interesting and develops a story just as well. So you can talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, would you like to elaborate on his uh, influence on the conquering of the Incan Empire? Um, that one I was a little bit cloudy on, but I'm pretty sure after uh, serving under Cortez, he uh, he had taken out the Aztecs under Cortez. He rose through Cortez's ranks, and then uh, he went on to conquer the Mayas. And then uh, a little side job was uh, the Incas as well. Bizarro would really be the main conquistador that would go on to conquer the the Inca, but he helped with conquering the Inca as well. So he was a very developed and very uh, a very accomplished man for his time period. Yeah, the man to be at that time. He was very rich and very uh, honored among his ranks. Um, speaking of uh, which, um, young Pedro de Alvarado and his brothers had proven themselves in the Aztec campaign and rose to the ranks of Cortes' army by showing themselves to be ruthless, courageous, and ambitious. So these three character traits I included because they're mainly what uh, the Spanish conquistadors <laughs> were to be. That's what they were to strive to be, um, ruthless, courageous, and ambitious. They were these men that stood for what's, what are called throughout history as the three Gs, God, gold, and glory. <laughs> yeah. Um, because of his great service, Cortez allowed him to go after the Quiche, which was like a, a offshoot of the Maya. They were influenced by Mayan culture. I mentioned them a little before, like a smaller tribe. Yeah, they uh, they took influence from the Mayans and they developed kind of on their own. Do you know the history behind them? How they started developing? Uh, it was really in the fall of the Maya. The Maya split into uh, several independent kingdoms, and the Quiche was uh, the strongest of those kingdoms and it would really develop out of the Maya. Mm. Yeah, um, he, Cortez allowed him to go after the Quiche and uh, in 1523 he left with 400 Spanish conquistadors and some 10,000 Indians. So uh, he had 400 of his own soldiers but uh, we were talking about earlier that some of the natives saw them as gods and uh, they, they used this to their advantage and on top of that they would actually, uh, they would join allies with uh, Native American tribes' enemies, and they'd use them in their advantage. So the the tribe that uh, Pedro used with the 10,000 Indians that we mentioned, uh, they thought that they were going to get their get their revenge back on the Quiche, but really uh, it was all just a part of the ultimate plan of the conquistadors taking over the new world. Yeah. So they really got used. Really got the hand there, yeah. yeah. Really got used. All right. Um, by the time Pedro de Alvarado arrived, um, the Mayan had seen the rise and fall of many great cities um, in their history, going back for hundreds of years. Um, for these reasons, the empire was already in decline and would not be able to hold resistance against the conquistadors, unfortunately. Yeah, so the Mayans had uh, had already seen their great period when, uh, what were we talking about? Six, 300 to... 300 to 600? 900. Or, yeah, 300 to 980. 600 years. So they had well seen their, their height of civilization. They were... Pretty, pretty well on their decline by this time period. So when the conquistadors came over, they really just finished the job. I wonder um, what it would be like to see them in their prime. These Yeah, the mines were already falling. These gilded giant uh, pyramids are just 
Weren't they like completely white? I believe. Uh, I know the the Giza pyramids were. I don't know about these ones. I do think, uh, interestingly enough, though, these pyramids did did have uh, different colors, and uh, most of that's worn out by now. But because you really all yeah. you just see as a stone. But yeah, these these were colorful structures too. They were really magnificent for their time. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to see them in their glory. Yeah, it would have been pretty amazing. Um. It was 1524 that he led the force of conquistadors south into the Mayan lands, destroying their city-states in present-day Guatemala. Yeah, or um, along the along the Yucatan in that area. That's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, talk about the city-states. So uh, you may be familiar with this concept if you've studied uh, Greek history, but city-states were essentially like. Their own cities with their own government, but under the control of an empire. Uh, a lot of cities in Europe during this time also had a similar structure, where uh, they were all technically part of the same empire and all had the same culture and development, but were under their own rule and had their own leadership with government structures. Would you relate that to like a federal and state level type government? Like the state had the power over their own state but there was federal laws that they yeah i think that's actually a pretty good way to describe that and uh i wouldn't be surprised if that's a that's the foundation of our own yeah our own own system yeah because uh yeah like you were saying the state has its own control over its own state but then it also has to pay attention and listen to the federal government yeah so So, it's similar to that yeah so you can see it's influenced even to present day which is very interesting i see um the Quiche would do their best to defend their kingdom, but at the Battle of El Pinao, they would uh, ultimately fail. After this battle, the conquistadors went for their capital, Utilan. Yep. So, uh, Battle of e- El Pinao? Did I say that right? Looks like us, El Pinao. My, my Spanish was lacking. I, I'm a French student. <laughs> How would that be pronounced in French? Oh, jeez. That's not French. <laughs> I, I know that. I that. <laughs> um, but... This battle was uh, hugely important. It was a terrible failure. The conquistadors just destroyed them in this battle. And this is like really the fall of the, the Mayan Empire, or at least our offshoot, the Quiche. And uh, they, they really couldn't do much to stop them. And uh, I mean, I'll just do this last one. Uh, their last-ditch their last ditch attempt, uh, the Quiche would try to trap the Spanish inside the walls of Utatlan, Say that right. I'm Utalan, yes. Thank you. Utalan. <laughs> Utalan. I'll just Utalan. have you like I'll just like pause and then just have you say the Spanish words for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh but their trick did not work. They tried to trap them inside the walls, or they te- they'd failed at the battle, and uh ultimately Alvarado was able to lay siege to the city and it ultimately surrendered. So that was really the fall of the Mayan Empire. Uh there there wasn't much they could do. They had developed so much later than these European civilizations, and they had been misguided in their, uh, their their view of these white people who they'd never seen before, and ultimately it just never panned out for these tribes, as we'll see. And we'll continue into the Inca. It was a very similar thing that happened to them as well. Have something to say? Yeah, unfortunately, throughout history, the more underdeveloped um civilizations were end up like used by the more powerful and more developed civilizations for their own strategy and gain. So unfortunate, we might be able to see a lot more of their influence if that, if they hadn't been conquered. Yeah. Uh, I'll argue that the same kind of thing happens today. Even Uh, 
like the the whole Cold War was uh, really the United States against Russia, but using these small tribes to or I say tribes, I'm confusing it with the <laughs> yes <laughs> these uh, these smaller countries, Afghanistan and Kuwait and uh, Vietnam and all of these less developed countries were just used by the United States and Russia during the Cold War. Yeah. It was very similar back then too. Uh, the big guy always gets the upper hand and abuses the little guy. Yeah, unfortunately, Sadly, the theme of history. It's not very uh, pleasant, but it is one that we we recognize and uh, it's very present in our history. Yep, very common theme. All right, now let's move on. Let's get into the Inca. All right. All right, guys. All right, guys. Let's get into the Mo- Inca. The My Inca. God, the Inca civilization. Yes, the Incas had lived as a complex civilization for three hundred years before Ata Atalupa. Is that yeah, correct? So. Uh, the Spanish guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know, but the spelling for his name is uh, very odd to me. Yeah, it does seem pretty weird. Um, years before Atalupa, the 13th and last, last emperor of the Incas died by being strangled by Francisco Pizarro toppling the Incan Empire. Could you imagine dying by being strangled? That's terrible. <laughs> it's a very personal oh way God. to, that to is kill someone. personal way. Jeez. <laughs> Francisco had it out for Adalupa. It's really up there with uh, the murders that have happened throughout history. Julius Caesar being stabbed 32 times. Oh, got uh, got Adalupa being strangled by Pizarro. <laughs> yeah, First hand, by his own hand. Very famous man for strangling another man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the Inca people, as you might have guessed, began as a hunter-gatherer tribe that arose out of the Peruvian highlands and the Cusco area around the late 12th and early 13th centuries. Under the leadership of, say this for me, Manco Capac. Thank you, Eden. <laughs> I was going to butcher that. They formed the small city states of Cusco, Quechua, and Cusco. Thank you. Keep going. <laughs> Cusco, Quechua, Quechua, and Cusco. There we go. Cusco uh, would go on to become the capital of this great empire. So uh, very similar to the Mayans and Inca, they had their Mayan and Inca. God, I can't talk today. <laughs> Very similar to the Aztec and Mayans, the uh, Inca would have their system of city-states, very similar. Uh, like we are talking about before, they had their own government, but they took uh, control from the Inca. Uh, their main cities, like we talked about before, uh, and then Cusco. I've actually always wanted to go to Cusco. Cusco is, from what I've heard, pretty awesome. <laughs> a really beautiful thing to see. Yeah, the geography there is, like, incredible. Yeah, high up in the, the Andes. Could you imagine being, uh, I think we we'll, might talk about this later. Could you imagine being here in Bingham, finding uh, Machu Picchu? You're just hiking one day up the mountains, and you find this just stone structures and terrace gardens and all this developed stuff just way up there in the mountains. It's That's crazy to think about. Yeah, like, civilization so elevated is just insane. It's, it's, it must be like a beautiful sight. Imagine like being part of that civilization, waking up every day thousands of feet above the rest of the world. Yeah, some of these civilizations throughout history have just developed in these beautiful places and these really exotic places. This makes you wonder what it would have been like to live back then. All right. Uh, in 1438, they began a far-reaching expansion under the command of Sapa. Yeah, Sapa Inca. Sapa Inca, whose name meant world shaker. So he, he really shook the world as he <laughs> did uh, his, his reaching expansion. Uh, 
think it's like his divine destiny and be like, I am the world shaker, must expand the Inca Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah, ex- ex- uh, land expansion, territorial expansion is very common in uh, their history, and uh, this one was. Yeah, I, I know that, but just thinking about having the name World Shaker. I wish I wish Jacob Dean translated something <laughs> like that. World Shaker. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, over time, the Inca would develop an elaborate government, building uh, great public works, including cities high up in the Andes. We were talking about Machu Picchu earlier. That's one of those really just beautiful cities that they cr- developed and created. Uh, they also made rope bridges through the jungles that they used for uh, transportation. And uh, I'll say this. Uh, keep in mind that they didn't have any uh, really pack animals back then. They had, like, uh, llamas and alpacas, but those weren't really uh, animals that could carry. These llamas and alpacas, they could carry hardly anything. They didn't have any pack animals back then that they could use to carry yeah, all this heavy stuff. They didn't have anything like a mule or oxen that could carry, like, Anything you could need. This was all purely based off just human power. And it's amazing to think about if this was all built by humans, how long it would have taken and how many people it would have taken. It's just crazy to think about. And then even at its height, the Incan Empire governed a population of over 12 million people. That's a ton of people. That's This is one of the biggest empires in pre-Columbian America. The Inca were a huge empire. Very massive. Uh, this would all change, however, when the young conquistador Pizarro heard about the great riches that this empire had and decided to go after it. So this Incan empire had developed into so much and it grew so big. And then Pizarro ultimately hears about it and he's like, all right, well, if they're this big, then they should also have uh, tons of treasure. Obviously, like a lot of the conquistadors' minds were back then. What was the, what was the lore behind the Incan um civilization what was the treasure there supposedly have like wasn't it like gold like they had uh uncountable amounts of gold well yeah uh like most of the empires back then uh or at least what the conquistadors thought they would have uh unlimited possessions of gold and silver or these emeralds and stuff uh actually uh south america was known for these really massive emeralds which is interesting. And then we'll talk about uh, one of the Incan mines. Uh, they also went after that. It was Cerro Rico. Cerro Rico ended up being one of the richest mines that the Spanish ever had control over. So it's really interesting. Uh, Cerro Rico? Is that like, uh, does that like mean something? Like Rich Mountain. Rich Mountain, yes. Uh, I, was, I knew that Rico was rich and I knew Cerro was something. Like a mountain. Yeah, yeah it's their <laughs> mountain. There you go. It's a rich mountain that's named for its, uh, its riches it's got. Uh, actually, uh, we'll talk about Pizarro's childhood. He actually grew up as a swine herder in Spain, and uh, he became a soldier in 1502. So you go from uh, you go from herding swine to uh, going across the ocean, becoming a soldier in general, and then strangling the leader of the Incan <laughs> Empire. <laughs> so really, this uh, this huge development that he had uh, from this humble beginning to uh, what he would ultimately end up doing. Uh, he went to Hispaniola with the new Spanish governor of the New World Colony and began his career as a Spanish conquistador. So he began in politics. He was a Spanish governor of a New World Colony, but he went into the military side of it and became a conquistador. And this is when he starts going after the Mayan. Here's our, the Inca. Inca, yes. And uh, he hears about the Inca. Uh, in 1524, Pizarro had formed an alliance with conquistador Diego Al- Almagro. After hearing legends of the great wealth of an Indian civilization deep in South America. 
Sailing down the west coast of South America from Panama, his first expedition made it as far as present-day Ecuador. So this is really where uh, Pizarro starts actually learning more about the Inca and actually seeing them firsthand uh, in 1524. He didn't end up seeing any of the major cities, but he did uh, He did get some artifacts from them. And these artifacts intrigued him, uh, how they were designed and how they were built by this great civilization. He wanted to, he wanted to learn more. And uh, he, he eventually did uh, by 1531. Something to say? Um, well... Yeah, by 1531, he sailed down to Peru and led his army over the Andes Mountains. Um, by November 15th, 1532, he reached the Incan town of Cajamarca, where where, uh, where Atalupa was. Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is finally when he actually gets into the empire and he starts uh, starts planning his invasion. Uh, yeah, his march on Cusco. Just so happens to be his luck, Pizarro's luck, that uh, in Cajamarca. Adalupa was uh he was chilling in like this I call it a hot tub that was a, it was more like a hot spring. Yeah. And he was he was just chilling there and uh he ran into him. He's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> my my uh my luck's my my luck's quite short. Yeah, there you go. And uh Pizarro actually uh invited Adalupa to attend a feast in his honor and the Emperor accepted. No problems there, right? Uh <laughs> special dinner for your friend uh Pizarro, right? Totally. <laughs> No problems there. You can you can trust Bizarro. I'm, I'm not going to strangle you later. <laughs> uh, of course, like many conquistadors of his time, you may have expected this was a trap. I, pretty obvious. Uh, he had a, he had set up this huge thing where Adelupo was to come to the square, and then they were he was supposed to be met. And, uh, and then there was, he thought he was going to go to a dinner, but uh, Pizarro actually had uh, his soldiers placed around the square, and uh, he actually ended up ambushing Adalupa at the square of Cajamajarca, and he killed several of Adalupa's men and actually captured Adalupa himself. So there you go. That's the betrayal that we've seen as a common theme by these Spanish conquistadors yeah. through all these empires. The, the tribes were very gullible. Yes. <laughs> Um, in ransom for his release, Adalupa offered to fill a room with treasure, accounting some 24 tons of gold and silver brought from throughout the Inca Empire. 24 tons, you know how much that is? Like 20, like, that's like about 12 cars. That's a lot of gold and silver. <laughs> yeah. A lot of gold and silver. Uh, this was the richest ransom in the history of the world. Wow. History of the world. Tons and tons of gold and silver that accounted for this ransom. And, uh, well, as you may have assumed, this ransom didn't work, didn't work out for him very well. Uh, Adalupa was strangled by Garrett, but in, uh, in the hope of preserving his body for mummification. So uh, he either had the choice of Pizarro. Uh, Adalupa gave him the ransom, but uh, Pizarro still found terms of treason that he accused Adalupa of. And uh, he gave Adalupa two choices. He could either be... Uh, he could either be garroted or strangled. Garrotined? Uh, no, not not guillotined. Guillotined, sorry. That's not that. He was like like a chain around his neck that would like choke Ooh. him. And uh, he had the choice between that and being burned at the stake, which Templars are familiar with. Talked about them last time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he chose to be garroted. And the hope of preserving his body for mummification. You think mummification was uh, just an Egyptian practice? That's actually uh, that's wrong. 
Uh, actually, a lot of these Indian cultures did uh, mummification processes as well. They were very dedicated to preserving the body for the afterlife. And obviously, the afterlife was different than Egypt, but they had this they had the similarity as well. So, pretty interesting. Um, uh, ultimately, Bizarro betrayed his trust, and with the execution of Atalupa, he brought about the end of 300 years of Incan civilization. So, uh, 300 years. That's still... It's still a pretty long time, but it's not as long as some of these other ancient empires mm -hmm. that have gone and existed throughout history. Yeah. But for the Inca, that was huge. That toppled the Incan Empire just by strangling their leader. <laughs> uh, the, the old saying goes, I think, uh, you kill the snake by cutting off its head. So there you go. You, you took, took yeah, out the common, snake's head. common theme in all these, uh, these conquerors. Um, Pizarro then marched on, Cus on Cusco in November 1533 and established himself as the Spanish governor of the Incan Empire or the Incan Territory. Um, so what does the toppling of these empires mean? Well, uh, one, it ultimately gave Spain power and control over the conquered territories and further colonization efforts in the New World. So uh, they take out the Aztec, they take out the Mayan, they take out the Inca. And because they're able to do this, uh, they take control of these empires. They already have all these existing structures and pyramid stuff that they can build and base colonies out of. Uh, there's, a, there's a term used by... Uh, I heard this term in uh, Advanced American History... Uh, it's called mestizos, which were uh, the descendants of Spanish and uh, Native American Native American people. Uh, they would mate with the uh, Native American tribes, and they would they would base their colonization and their colonies off of the pre-existing structures that they had built. So it allowed them to, to push further deeper into the territory and really establish themselves more and more. The more they conquered, the more territory they got, and the more territory, the more gold and silver and stuff that they would come across and be able to build more and more. Mm -hmm. And then uh, two, Spain gained massive loads of treasure from these conquered empires, prompting what are called the three G's. God, serve the Christian God and go there to, uh, to convert the tribes to Christianity. Um, gold, so that they could build the empire and make the empire rich. Uh, Spain became the richest European country during this time because of all the expeditions that the conquistadors would end up doing. And then glory. Obviously, that one should be self-explanatory. They wanted to uh, want to show how great they were. If they were able to do these great tasks and take out these huge empires, they, uh, they would bring glory to their family name and glory to Spain. So the three Gs, God, gold, and glory. And then, uh, all right, I think... Now we'll talk about the Spanish treasure. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Um, and that's where it leads into, like, all this treasure and all this gold is like, going to be transferred, and that's where um, that's where the fleet will come in. Yep. So uh, they, they conquer these empires. They start establishing these mines. We'll talk about the mining in uh, the next section. Uh, but they've got all this pre-existing structures. They have all the gold and stuff from that civilizations they conquered uh, they make mines they get even more stuff and then with all this gold they need a way to transport it back to spain yeah because um everything's going back to spain yeah and that would be the spanish treasure fleet that would be carrying this treasure back to them all right there we are uh unfortunately guys that's all we have time for today um we'll roll out part two sometime uh soon hopefully um where we'll talk about uh the fleets and the the remaining uh, mining uh, stuff. And yeah. We're so gonna... we're going to 
we're, we're going to split this into two parts. That was the first one. That was the part one that we we're talking about the conquistadors and the empires and how they got all this gold and silver, how they got their riches. Next, we'll talk about uh, the mining and the transportation and the, the fleet itself. And then we'll talk about some of the people who actually went after that fleet. Yeah. And I actually, uh, I, I know Mel Fisher's granddaughter. We'll talk about him. And I can mention some of the stuff that I did with her. She was a very interesting person to talk to. I think you guys would like hearing my my opinion on her. She She's an interesting person. Um, other than that, like I said, that's part one. We'll get part two out pretty soon. Uh, I don't know. Trying to figure out time-wise. Uh, I'll just say soon. In part one, part two, and then we'll get out another episode towards uh, towards the end of the week and the beginning of next week. Uh, other than that, we got some people who have liked the Facebook page and who have uh, been supporting us along the way, and I'll include some of those names in this episode. Thank you guys for all of your support so far. All right, I'll start listening to all the names. All right, shout-out to Larissa Hooper, Hooper, Morgan Perkins, Jordan Furlan, Cindy Dean, Timothy Oitman, Jessica Lynn, Tyler Clark, Marianne Dean, Taylor Sunderledge, Michael Hughes, Deborah Thomas, Ari Katner, and uh, Jason Coldren. All right. Thank you guys for all of your support. And the next part will include some of the, some more shout-outs to you guys who have been supporting us along the way. We thank you for the support. Uh, we couldn't make this podcast without your support. And uh, you got anything else before we... On this episode, uh, one more thing. Uh, big shout out to Scott Walter. Uh, I noticed that he was um, he was looking around our Facebook page as well. And uh, I was big shout out to him. In the next one. <laughs> I, I, I know that, but I gotta give a shout out to Scott yeah, Walter. I guess, yeah. As soon as possible. Thanks, Scott. Shout out to you. That was awesome too. Yeah, we really really enjoyed that. Scott Walters listened to the podcast. That's a cool thing to see. Um, but yeah, uh, shout out to Anchor again, uh, our podcasting service. Yeah, great tool if you guys want to make your own podcast. So it's what we've been using, and it's been working pretty well so far. Besides a few kinks, yeah, a few a few minor issues, but um, other than that, it's been it's been working wonders. Uh, but thank you again. Tune in, uh, tune in soon. We'll set up. Uh, we'll send out that ne- next episode for you. All right, this is Jacob Dean, Ian Decker. All right, you guys have a good week, and carpet dime, carpet dime. <laughs>